thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to preach this morning from our series entitled Courageous Living. My name is Edward, one of the ministers here, and I hope that as we read this story and seek to understand it, both then and now, the Lord God, the living God, the God of every age, would speak and uh, reshape your life. That's our prayer, that's our hope, and uh, thank you for journeying with us this morning. I've called this uh, sermon, this message, entitled Courageous Living to See Transformation, and it's from Daniel chapter 4. A Christian speaker was preaching to a group of the great and the good that assembled one of those gatherings with high flyers, influential business people, leaders. And the speaker, the preacher, thought long and hard and decided to go to the heart of the matter and spoke on God's love. And he chose to speak about the parable of the prodigal son. That's Luke 15. The talk went really well. After the the message, he asked those who had gathered the audience who'd heard him whether they had any questions. Towards the back, a a businessman, well-dressed, very smart suit, put his hand up and said that he was very unimpressed with the parable and what he'd been told. He said he didn't, he didn't need God like that son did, the one who'd gone and squandered his wealth and came back with nothing. He'd got to the top without anybody's help, not even God's. And he made this statement, perhaps weak people need this God, certainly not him. The Christian speaker left feeling discouraged, demoralised, went home wondering what type of message would be appropriate for that businessman. Many powerful, self-confident people carry that same heart attitude. They take no notice of God and think they don't need this God. It's just a crutch. It's just a support for the weak and the vulnerable, for those who can't make it. When we have the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, sometimes you get a condescending rejection. And we are left wondering, will they ever respond to the gospel, to God, to Jesus? And yet, I want us to see from the story of Daniel chapter 4, courageous living to see transformation. You see, like that businessman, like perhaps you've shared sometimes, you've often know that thought or share that feeling of praying for a loved one, a friend, a spouse. It seems like for month upon month, for ages. And it seems like there's no answer. It's like an impenetrable brick wall, no change, not even a chink in their impervious armour. Maybe we've heard stories or even ourselves engage in praying for places, nations, leaders around the world in different eras of our life. Praying for a heart change, a genuine transformation of leaders of nations like North Korea or of China or of um, Cambodia in the Pol Pot regime or wherever it would happen to be. If only they would repent and believe. It can seem too long with no answer, and so often we're tempted, what's the point? Does God even hear? Does prayer change anything? 
Daniel and his friends in, in Babylon may have thought the same thing about King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, as you may or may not know, was the greatest of emperors, leaders of the Chaldean dynasty in Babylonia. He conquered Syria and Palestine and made Babylon in modern-day Iraq a splendid city. He, he destroyed, he, he kind of conquered uh, Jerusalem and, uh, and Judah, and he destroyed Solomon's temple, carried off all the young, bright things, those with education and learning, and transported them and caused them to be kind of um, civil servants in his, in his city. He initiated the Babylon captivity. He was the cause of the exile, at least in human terms. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who, who created the hanging gardens of Babylon, with which he constructed for his wife and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And under his rule, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. And Babylon was a formidable city the ruins of which now spread over 2,000 acres and form the greatest archaeological site in the Middle East. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. And yet we get this curious, wonderful, slightly bizarre chapter, Daniel chapter 4. The story is about Daniel and his friends, but chapter 4 seems to be written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it describes how this man, this man who had everything and everyone to serve him without question, how he came to acknowledge the living God as his Lord. It's an astonishing story. So let me read a few of the verses from Daniel chapter 4, and I'll start at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you that the, about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He's called Belshazzar after the name of my God and, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches from it. 
every creature was fair. In the visions, I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets there over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what this means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar had already had an encounter with Daniel and a dream in chapter 2. He knew that Daniel was wise, wise beyond human wisdom. Did you notice this chapter? The language is, is Nebuchadnezzar's. This is about him. He's the author of this part of the letter. It's a testimony of his transformation in the book of Daniel. And he ends, as we shall see, with praise to the living God and tells the story of how he came to know God, how his eyes were opened, how he met the living, loving God. My prayer Whoever you are, however you're watching this, is that you would re-encounter God and find him afresh. You see, Daniel 4 provides us with an insight and a, a really important key sometimes in speaking with, of ministering to, of drawing alongside successful people. I posed a question a few moments ago about do we ever become demoralized in sharing our faith in witnessing to those who seem self-content, who've made it, who are content in life, seemingly, who have status and authority, prestige, and so forth. It's just worth reminding when it seems hopeless and you're tempted to give in, that no one is beyond the reach of God's love. So what chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 speak of. Here is Nebuchadnezzar's greatest of emperors in the Chaldean emperor, everything at his disposal. Top of the pyramid. And yet he's not beyond God's reach. Nebuchadnezzar seemed like an unlikely person to find God. He was wicked and arrogant as well as powerful. But we continue to pray and pray for those who have contact and influence with such people, perhaps even us. No one should be considered beyond the reach of, of God's love. Jesus said in John 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So Nebuchadnezzar writes his testimony and addresses it first and foremost to the peoples, the nations and people of every language who live in all the world. It seems a little bit uh, like the manifesto of a megalomaniac. 
But the king was the king of the whole of the region. Everyone would come and be in submission to him. It's interesting, isn't it? In the New Testament, the gospel is for the poor. Absolutely. Jesus said it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. That doesn't mean those who see themselves as well aren't in need as well. Remember in Paul's uh, missionary journeys in the, the, the book of Acts and, and in his writing to Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, he says we should pray for our rulers and that includes praying for their conversion. That if we get chance to speak to them, we should try to use every opportunity to speak about Jesus. Courageous living after all. When Paul came in front of Herod Agrippa in Acts 26, Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replies, short time or long. I pray that God, not, uh, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for those in chains. I urge you, in your witness and your prayerfulness for those who seem like they're closed off to the gospel. Do not give up. And as such, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar is in his bedroom, lazing about, perhaps content, relaxed, at ease. And he has visions and dreams. How great are his signs, says Nebuchadnezzar. How mighty his wonders. In verse 2, it was the miraculous signs and wonders the most high God has performed for me. Remember what he's seen. But something took place in this episode in chapter 4 that led him to change heart and become a believer, to convert. Convert's a word that's out of vogue for us. It's a, a word that means to change from, from one faith to another, particularly into Christianity, to turn around, to turn towards, to change or transform, to be won over. Why and what happened to make Nebuchadnezzar convert from being the top of the tree, from being the top of the pinnacle of the pyramid of Babylon? of uh, parading Marduk and all these false gods. How did he come to know? Well, signs played an important part. This vision, this dream, God still works miraculously. It's okay to pray and ask for signs and wonders. It seems sometimes signs and wonders occur most prevalently in places that are, are described as developing, uh, of ministering to the poor and the marginalized and the illiterate. And we can't even fly from that, that they're of no value to those of us in the West. But that's not what the Bible says. God is at work. The living one, that he works in all sorts of people's lives, in all sorts of situations. God captures the attention of the highly educated. Moses, 40 years brought up in Pharaoh's court, was captivated by the bush that didn't burn up. And two other miracles in, in Exodus 34. In Paul's ministry, Sergius Paulus, the consul, proconsul in Cyprus, and Publius, uh, Publius, sorry, the chief official in Malta, were reached through miraculous signs. 
It's amazing what God will do. Just this week in the newspapers, been astonished to read about the, the, the wall of answered prayer. Did you see the stories about it? Uh, a visionary project by Richard Gamble, former Leicester City football chaplain, is his vision and dream and being granted planning permission in Coles Hill near Birmingham to build a colossal national landmark. The sheer scale of the wall that he's planning to bring in a, a build in a prominent, a prominent location will, be, will place the landmark and its message at the forefront, he hopes, of the national consciousness. One million bricks, visible for six miles, and each brick, a testimony to the answer of prayer from Jesus. Wow. What a sign. Signs are important. Let's pray for them. But as we get to grips with Nebuchadnezzar, we see something that is true for all of us once the facade is stripped away. Nebuchadnezzar suffers from fear. True of the powerful and the overlooked. It's so often true that sophisticated people of today, the self-made, the confident, the educated, hide fear. But it comes to the surface when a personal crisis occurs. It's so often the truth that people in their hour of need, even have been having been the most resolutely anti-God turn to God in the crisis in that moment when they recognize they aren't enough to find where can I find true security we need not be reluctant to ask the Lord to reveal his power to those we seek to witness to in times of need the Bible doesn't make a big deal about signs, but they are there all the way through. Let's look for opportunities to capture people's attention and introduce, introduce them to see God's salvation. Nebuchadnezzar starts, he says, he admitted his self-reliance before he met God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my home in the palace, contented and prosperous. He wants to show that he didn't think he needed God at all. At the heart of that is pride. Pride is, is that danger, and the danger that stems from pride is that it feeds on goodness. Commentators reflect that, that in the history of the Mesopotamians and Egyptians and indeed of the Babylonians, this deep-seated ideology that says man reigns supreme with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries. Man alone is free and growing stronger. God is either unconcerned or non-existent. It's human initiative that makes history. And it's primarily by force that constellations change. Man can attain his own salvation. It wasn't just true for Nebuchadnezzar, but so often in our culture. But he had need. He went to God because he was disturbed by this dream, the sign of this tree in the landscape. Something in that moment brought him back to be a seeker of truth. His dream terrified him. 
His security, he began to understand, came from a source that wasn't stable. Visions came through my mind that terrified me. He calls in the wise and says, help me understand what this means. None of them could answer. So he calls Daniel, the one who knew had spoken truth in his previous vision we heard in chapter 2. It's very often true, as people get to know us over the course of time, they may not give any outward sign that our faith matters to them. But integrity and consistency and consistent obedience to Jesus are so, so precious. Because when a moment of decision, when a moment of crisis, when a moment when people are caused to look up and out and think, where does my help come from? It's again and again repeated that people will turn to those who they see integrity and truth. And whether they know it or not, the presence of Jesus within. Someone told the story, a true story, a card-carrying member of a communist party came regularly to a youth club. He argued a lot about Christianity it seemed so far from God. But when there was serious sickness in his family, he contacted the church, much to their surprise. He knew that in the hour of his need, he could trust the church to be concerned for him. And it was not long, with loving, prayerful support, that he converted and later became a dynamic leader in the church. We're often ridiculed for our beliefs and mocked and sidelined. But let's remain courageous in our faith. Avoid the temptation to break contact with such people, to think they're hopeless. We can take the opportunities that God gives. And so Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar and interprets his dream. It took a while for Nebuchadnezzar to ask, pride, but he called to Daniel. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, points out in this, many make God's word their last refuge and never have recourse to it till they're driven off from all other sources. Paul talks about stubbornness and an unrepentant heart. True of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, he asked Daniel for help. He was wise, I guess. So many would rather ruin their lives completely than turn to God in help and ask for help. Nebuchadnezzar swallows his pride and turns to God. What does Daniel do? He interprets the dream. He speaks and explains to Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is about. This enormous, strong tree. We've heard it read. The messenger comes down and says it will be cut down and stripped of its branches and leaves. And those who took uh, comfort from within its shade would be sent away. Notice that the language of, uh, turns from the tree in verse 15, but let him be drenched. There's a shift that is no longer about an object, but actually about a person. And here's where we pick up. Daniel interprets the dream. Verse 19. 
Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, don't let this dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, and providing food for all, and giving shelter to wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are the tree. You've become great and strong, your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one. A messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals until seven times pass him by. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree, the most high has issued against the my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority is taken away and you'll be driven away from your people. And it was fulfilled. Verse 34, we skip just a few bits. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honor and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? My sanity was restored. My honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. All those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled because he needed to look up. For much of his life, the message of God's love and sovereignty passed him by. He was unimpressed. Remember the businessman at the start of the sermon? Of course, we must preach God's love to all people. It's not only the heart of the gospel. It's the gospel's greatest attraction. A hard-hearted person will resist it. 
but love them we must and share the love of Jesus. But during difficult times or when there's the, the inclination of the heart to think, what is more? Is there more than this? What is the point of it all? The hardest heart can become vulnerable to the Spirit's wooing and suddenly the eyes of the heart become opened. Evangelist R.A. Torrey was dealing with one of the worst and careless and vile women he'd ever met. She moved in high society but had a secret life that was truly immoral. Torrey says she told me her story of her life in the most shameless and unblushing way, half laughing as she said it, kind of proud. Torrey's response was simply to read her John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As he read those words, she burst into tears, a broken heart responding to God's love. When we look at Nebuchadnezzar, it says something to the businessman who was unimpressed by the gospel of love. But don't forget, God is powerful and sovereign. Daniel urged Nebuchadnezzar to repent before it was too late. Don't go back to the old ways, embrace the new. Nebuchadnezzar ignored him. And the terrible things mentioned in the dream took place. And it was only when he came and looked up and looked and recognised that actually he needed the living Lord was his life restored and back into fullness of life. His basic problem was pride. I remember being, um, before I was a believer, and I'd spent ages as uh, as a young adult, as a teenager, arguing against Jesus, finding every way I could to belittle Jesus, to belittle the gospel, to undermine the credibility of the church. Do you know what? When I came to that realization that Jesus was real, one of the things that held me back for quite a time was, I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to have to face those people I've ridiculed and say, you were right. But you know, none of them, not even one, ever kind of rubbed my nose in it. They were just delighted I discovered Jesus, the author of life. C.S. Lewis, as I conclude with this, sums it up. Nebuchadnezzar has to be brought down before God could finally speak into his hard heart. He says, a proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you.